All right, good evening, everyone. You're going to want to open up your Bible or grab one of the Bibles in the pew in front of you and open it up to the book of Exodus, chapter 4. If you're joining us for the first time tonight, we are just working our way right through the Bible a couple of chapters a week. And so we've just started on our adventure in the second book of the Pentateuch, known as Exodus. We're actually starting tonight right in the middle of a conversation that Moses is having with the angel of the Lord who's appeared to him uh, in a burning bush. Moses is now about 80 years old, and 40 years ago he abandoned a dream, a calling even, that he felt called to deliver the Israelites from Egypt after uh, murdering a... um, a slave driver, and then trying to break up two uh, Jewish men who were fighting uh, and discovering that he'd been found out, that the murder was known. He flees from Egypt. He marries in the land of Midian, and then he's just a shepherd for 40 years. And he sees this burning bush, and he turns aside to take a look, and God speaks to him from the bush, and he says effectively, I am the God of your, descent, of your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I have heard the cries of your people in Israel, and I'm sending you to deliver them. Now, in chapter 3, Moses has some questions. Chapter 4, those questions continue, but they're getting more and more away from outright humility and into outright resistance and hesitation. And so we pick up in verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1, then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they'll say, the Lord did not appear to you. And the Lord said to him, what's that in your hand? And he said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand, and he caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous, like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on dry ground. And so Moses' concern here is why would they trust a random individual And recognize how this is going to go down. Either Moses stands to be forgotten and therefore unrecognized. He might as well be a foreigner, a total stranger, and he comes in. He says, hey, everybody, can I get your attention for a second? God has spoken to me, and he's told me that I'm to deliver you, right? There's no reason to expect that that would go any better than it would if that happened to you while you were grocery shopping, right? The other possibility is that people will actually recognize him 40 years later. And so he gets their all attention and they go, wait a minute, aren't you the one who murdered that Egyptian and then ran away? Where have you been? 
You know, either way, he doesn't have any reputation to stand on. And so here is, is a valid question. He just says, where's the evidence? Where's the proof? How can I convince them that I really am the one who you've sent? And he gives him two and possibly a third sign. The first involves his staff. And he just says, throw it on the ground. And as he does so, the staff becomes a snake. And I love that it adds here that Moses saw that and he just runs away. Because I think I can relate. I'm not terribly afraid of snakes, but I've never had an inanimate object turn into a snake before. Um, But nonetheless, he runs away and God says, grab it by the tail and it becomes his staff again. The second one, he takes his hand, he presents it in his cloak, and when he pulls it out again, it's diseased. He's got a flesh disease like leprosy, and when he puts it back, it's restored fully. And so God says, these are the evidences I'm sending you with that I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that I'm going to deliver Israel. And he says, if they don't believe the first, maybe they'll believe the second. And if they don't take either of them, he says, take some water from the river Nile and dump it out on the ground and it will become blood before them. Now already, if you're familiar with the story, you're recognizing some pointing forward to the plagues in that, right? The plagues uh, involve the river Nile becoming blood at one point. But these signs aren't for Pharaoh. These signs are for the Israelites, specifically, as we'll see, the elders of Israel. So at this point, just to remind you, Moses has this surprising interaction and evidence and validation that God is calling him. Um, Moses has the uh, revelation of God's character. He says, tell them that I am that I am has sent you. Remind them that right here, right now, they're going to know me when they see what I'm doing. He says, the great sign for you in Israel will be the fact that I'm actually going to do this. I'm actually going to deliver you. Now, he's given a couple of um, signs. His staff uh, will show up over and over in the story again. He's got all of this, but he still has questions. Verse 10, but Moses said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. Now, there are some who have read this and said that Moses has a speech impediment. That's really unlikely. And the reason I say that is because there's a aspect of the ancient world, specifically of Hebrew culture, that just doesn't have any play in the modern world, which is to speak incredibly lowly to express things in terribly humble ways. And so Gideon says, I'm the least of my family and it's the least of its tribe. Saul says something similar. He says, I'm a nobody, even though his dad is a war hero. Uh, We find many of the prophets saying similar things. In fact, Paul continues it when he says, I'm the least of the apostles, right? I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle. And so he has concerns here, but it's not a physical concern problem that he has. He just doesn't think that he's up to speaking. Notice it didn't stop him 40 years ago when he stood up and tried to make a speech to his own people. But here he just says, he says, I'm not the right guy for the job. I'm not eloquent enough for this. And so verse 11, the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now we can see kind of the silliness of this argument. Okay. For one, let's just recognize this isn't a job interview, and so Moses isn't telling God something he doesn't already know. He's not like, there's one thing you should know about me, I have a speech impediment. That's not what's going on here. He's resistant, he's hesitant, he doesn't want the job, and he's scrambling for excuses, and God just shuts it down, and he says, that mouth, the one that you're so worried about, who made that? 
And as we'll see, one of the earmarks of the story of the Exodus is that God is totally sovereign. And so he sovereignly trains up Moses in this way, and he sovereignly sees to it that Aaron just happens to be coming here. And he sovereignly will see it over and over again. And so he just reminds him. God does the same thing with Jeremiah. When God first reveals himself to Jeremiah in chapter 1 of that book, uh, he calls him and explains what he's going to do, lays out his ministry, and he says, but I'm, but I'm only a youth. Nobody's going to listen to me. I have nothing to say. And uh, God makes the same case to Jeremiah. He says, I knew you before you were born. Okay? I've destined you for this, is effectively what God says to Jeremiah. And here to Moses, he just says, look, I know what I got in the, into when I asked you to do this. And so verse 12, he says, Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Notice it's not harsh. He's not rash here. He's not yet frustrated with Moses. He just says, go, it'll be fine. You'll have me, and that's sufficient. But Moses isn't done. And so here in verse 13, he says, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Okay? He's out of explanations. He's out of questions. He's out of excuses. He just says, please, send someone else. I, I don't want the job. I'm not the right guy for the job. And it's at this point, it says in verse 14, that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he'll be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and he will teach you both what to do. Now, I don't want to overstress what's going on here because we only have a couple of details. Detail number one, Moses is becoming relatively resistant. Detail number two, God is angered by this. Detail number three, God accommodates Moses through the use of Aaron, right? And so what we're going to see is he comes up with an arrangement where God will speak to Moses, Moses will tell Aaron directly what to say, and Aaron will address both the Israelites as well as Pharaoh. Now, what I mean when I say I don't want to overgauge or overassess what's going on here, should we read this as if Moses has lost out on an opportunity? I think it's a possible reading, it's a possible reality. God is clearly angry. What's more important to me is not what is Moses missing out on here. It's the recognition that even Moses' stubborn hesitancy is not going to derail God from his plan. It's not even going to derail God from his plan to use Moses. See what he doesn't do here? He doesn't say, you know what, you're right. I'll find someone else. Here comes your brother. And then squeeze Moses off to the side. Even here, he adapts. He comes alongside. He assists Moses by giving him not just his own presence, which he promised a verse ago, but also the presence of his brother, okay? But nonetheless, he lays this out, and so he says in verse 16, he shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And so there's this mediatorial aspect here. God kind of just parallels the picture. In all honesty, I think what God is doing here is teaching Moses a very long lesson, okay? Because he's now said, okay, fine. Why don't we change the interview up and you sit on this side of the table, okay? Now you're going to be the one with a message to deliver and he's going to be your mouth. And you're going to learn how totally possible this is. And I will tell you personally that it is very, very hard 
to sit on the bench and not put yourself back in the game. And it's interesting, as you pay attention to the story, there are occasions where it says Moses is speaking and occasions where it says Aaron is speaking, and it's never clarified for us. When it says that Moses is speaking, it may very well be that it means Aaron is speaking, but remember Moses is speaking through Aaron. It also may be that there are occasions where Moses avails himself to this and occasions where there's not. The ambiguity is left in the text. But the emphasis that we should be getting from this story is that God is devoted to deliverance and he's devoted to using Moses. And so at this point, Moses is out of excuses, he's out of these things, He says in verse 17, take in the hand this staff, which you shall do the signs. So verse 18, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. Now, recognize here, Moses doesn't tell Jethro the whole story right? He doesn't say, hey, I was just talking to this bush that was on fire, and it says that I've got this destiny. He just says, hey, I need to go back to Egypt and see if my people are still alive, see if they're surviving. There's two things I want you to recognize in this. First, can we really imagine it any differently? Can we imagine Moses laying everything on the table? And so he's, he's relatively um, obscure in this. He doesn't lay out the whole thing, but I also want you to notice that he asks permission. He comes to Jethro and he says, will you allow me to do so? Okay, And so he honors the fact that Jethro is his father-in-law, but he doesn't, um, he doesn't divulge the whole story. And so that's the first thing we see that he speaks to Jethro and Jethro says, go in peace. In verse 19, and the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and he went back to the land of Egypt and Moses took the staff of God in his hand. Okay, two things here. First, he just asked permission And now it says that God speaks to him directly. And so put it in the timeline again. God says, I'm sending you to Egypt. He says, hey, father-in-law, I'm headed to Egypt. And then God says, now you need to go to Egypt. And he even gives him a reason. He says, all the people who wanted to kill you, the Pharaoh and all of his high court, they're all dead, okay? Clearly here, there's a veiled reference to once again how hesitant Moses is to get rolling, okay? It's almost like God preemptively knows his next excuse, Like, he's going to come back to the bush, knock on God's door, and say, hey, you know, I was thinking about it, and I really don't think, right? He just preempts that, and he says, look, go now. And it says as well that Moses took the staff of God in his hand. That's the second thing we need to notice. God says, I'm giving you the staff. When he's leaving, he says, don't forget to take the staff. And now it tells us that that's exactly what Moses did. Why? Okay. The staff is not a magic wand. That's not what it is. Every single time it is used in the narrative to follow throughout the history of Israel, it is used because God says, okay, now use it. Okay. What it really is, is not some sort of magical object, but a representation of the fact that God goes with Moses. Okay. It's a reminder of the fact that God is going to do the work, that God is, going to do, uh, God is going to be present. I think one of the places that articulates this the best is when Moses finally brings the people out of Egypt. I, I hope that's not a spoiler for you. Um, and he ends up at the Red Sea. 
and everybody's freaking out because they've got the Red Sea at their back and they're looking back at Egypt and they can just see the dust of all of Pharaoh's chariots coming their way. And so they start to complain and they start to be frustrated and God speaks and then Moses speaks for God and he says, stand still and see the salvation of your God. And he holds his staff over the water as he was commanded in the Red Sea parts, just like in the movies. Um, the emphasis there is a major aspect of what's going on here. It's something that we need to keep in mind. What they needed to be saved from the Egyptians was just to stand still. There's a commentator I enjoy. I'll probably quote him when we get to chapter 14 as well, but his name is David Gutzik, and he points out that if Israel had started swimming, that would have been presumption, right? They don't escape and then God aids them in their escape. They have to stand still. There's a waiting. Sometimes what faith looks like is inactivity. And so they just have to stand and wait and see. They're not running to fight the battle. They're not retreating into the Red Sea and swimming for it. They wait and God delivers. Um, and so here it reminds us that the staff goes with Moses because if the staff goes with Moses... God goes with Moses, much like the ark in Israel's later history. So verse 21 of chapter 4, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Now, in chapter 3, it told us that, uh, that Pharaoh would harden his heart unless the Israelites were delivered with a mighty hand. So God says, I'm going to use my hand and deliver you. Now it's pressed further and he says, the mighty hand's going to be evident. The miracles are going to be done. There's going to be signs, but Pharaoh is going to resist. And notice what it specifically says here. God says that he is the culprit. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, this becomes one of the major tensions of the, na of the narrative because God promises himself as the deliverer, but it's a long road. As, as we'll see in just the next chapter, the very first time he has a conversation with Pharaoh, Pharaoh just shuts him down, makes everything worse for Israel, and Israel is more frustrated and more oppressed than they've ever been. And so the question is, why, why does God set it up this way? Why doesn't he just prove himself to Pharaoh and allow Pharaoh to be impressed by it and then, and then it's over? And we'll see the reason later tonight, but right now I just want to leave it there. And so uh, he says, I'll harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then, verse 22, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Okay, so first, this is the initial reference to Israel, God's people, being his son. This becomes a common way that God refers to himself and to his people as father and as child. But this is the first time. When we look at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God reveals, to, uh, reveals himself and his character in many different ways. But he never refers to Abraham as my son. He never refers to Abraham's descendants as his children. But here he says, this is the reason why it's all going down. He says, you have attacked my chosen people, my firstborn son. This is an important reference. 
it is possible that you are, and it's possible that you are not familiar with what's called liberation theology. And liberation theology is actually a very large camp, so I can't just tell you exactly what it means. But generally, all liberation theology looks to the book of Exodus as being evidence that God is always on the side of the oppressed. And that what God's people would be doing is if if they were with God was pursuing uh, delivering, pursuing bringing to freedom oppressed people. Now, the problem with liberation theology is twofold. The first is it completely ignores the book that comes before Exodus. It looks at the Exodus uh, happening and this deliverance as being the sum total of what God is doing, but it neglects the reality that comes before this, the fact that God is the creator, uh, the fact that there is this fallen nature issue that happens with Adam and Eve, the fact that God has given promises to these people, right? He doesn't just deliver... Israel because they're oppressed. He delivers them because they are his children, right? Now, that's not to say that God isn't on the side of the oppressed, and the prophets spend a good deal of time talking to these selfsame people who who know what it's like to be strangers, who know what it's like to be slaves, and saying, hey, watch out for how you treat the foreigners, because God is a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows, because God cares for the stranger, So what I'm saying tonight is not that God only cares for his people. What I'm saying is the work that God is doing in the book of Exodus is a whole lot more than just liberation. In fact, we see that in another way because what does he say? Look again at verse 23. I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. That's another place where liberation theology falls short. It misses the fact that this is from one service to another. It's not freedom for freedom's sake. It's actually bringing these people out so that they might serve their God. No longer serve oppressive Pharaoh so that they might serve God. And there's this tendency in modern thinking to make freedom the ultimate goal of life. The Bible says that's an impossibility for human beings. You know, to quote Bob Dylan, you've got to serve somebody. And so the question here is, uh, the, the command uh, uh, actually is, speak to Pharaoh and tell him, these people belong to me. They're going to serve me, so therefore they're no longer going to serve you. Um, the last thing we need to refer- uh, recognize here is, is the threat that God makes. He gives a consequence. He says, if you refuse to let go my firstborn son, I will kill your firstborn son. And so, here, all we need to recognize is that's where the story is headed. Now we get to one of the most mystifying sections in the book of Exodus, verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zephora took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom, excuse me, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Okay, it's just uh, three verses here, but really, really difficult to understand. And part of the difficulty is the ambiguity. Listen again to the missing references. Okay, notice in verse 24, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him. Who? We would assume Moses. But notice what it says, the Lord met him, um, 
and sought to put him to death. Okay, now the second uh, thing we see here is in verse 25, then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin. What does Moses' son have to do with anything? Is it possible here that the him that he met along the way is actually Moses' son, that it's his life on the line? It's ambiguous. Uh, it's ambiguous. Not only that, but notice it says uh, he took his, uh, cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet. Now, if you have a better translation, it's not Moses' feet. It just says touched his feet. Okay. On top of that, about 80% of the time that the Bible refers to feet, when we're already dealing with genitals, it's just talking about genitals. Okay. And so does this mean he touched the foreskin to the feet of Moses, to the feet of Moses' son, to the genitals of Moses, or to the genitals of Moses' son? We don't know. It's ambiguous. Okay. Uh, and then there's this phrase, bridegroom, bridegroom of blood. Now, to us, that sounds inherently negative. And maybe it is. Maybe Zephora is absolutely upset with her husband. And so she, you know, I, I picture it this way. She circumcises her son, and she throws the foreskin at her, at her husband's feet, and he's like, you know, force choking to death. Uh, and she just says, that's who you are to me. You're a husband of blood, right? But it, it also is a little bit hard to tell because this word for bridegroom means relative by marriage, okay? And so some actually say that you could translate this blood relative, right? That's the, when you take a relative by marriage and you add blood, now we have a blood relative. And so maybe what she's emphasizing here is a closer relationship. In fact, I read one commentator who sees this as effectively a renewal of vows because she thought her husband was dead. And now that he's been given back to her in life, it's like wedding bells all over again, okay? It's very ambiguous. However, we haven't even dealt with the hardest part. Most likely, the one whose life is on the line here is Moses, okay? Because there's no reference to his son before the hymn in verse 24, most likely it's talking about Moses. Moses and his family are on the way, and suddenly God tries to kill Moses. After all the time he spent convincing Moses to go, what is going on here? It, it, makes, it makes God seem bipolar, right? It, it makes it sound like this was just a trap. But let's just put some obvious cards on the table, okay? If God's great plan was to kill Moses, A, he could have done it without all of the deception. Moses doesn't have to leave the safety of his house and get on the road to Egypt so that God can take his life, okay? B, Clearly here, if God was mad at Moses and wanted to just take his life, there wouldn't be any stopping it, right? He clearly puts Moses' life on the line to make a point, but if he wanted Moses' life to end, he doesn't need, you know, a five-minute countdown. This is not the suspenseful moment in a movie where you're trying to decide to cut the blue wire, right? And so what's really going on here? I'm going to put in a context. The context may be right or wrong, but it will help us to look at this passage. It seems pretty clear here that for some reason, Moses hasn't circumcised. And, and there's, I left this out, but there's a plural in there. So it may even be that Moses and his son are both uncircumcised. And the reason why there's this foreskin that gets thrown at his feet is basically he, uh, he benefits 
from a single circumcision in his place. Uh, whatever is going on here, though, Moses' kids, his two sons, haven't fulfilled the covenant. If you go back to the book of Genesis in chapter 15, when God lays out the covenant of circumcision, that is the inside-outside line for people of Israel. Okay? Now, we're going to find out by the time that Israel gets to the land of Israel, when they get to the promised land of Canaan, that the practice of circumcision has fallen by the wayside. And so when they step into the land of Canaan, the first thing they do is a mass circumcision because it has to be done now, okay? Maybe that neglect goes all the way into Moses' history. Maybe none of the Israelites are maintaining this practice because let's be honest, for 400 years, God has seemed relatively absent in their life, okay? Also, it could be that Moses, when he fled from his people, never thought he would be Jewish again, right? Saw himself as excommunicated. He names his firstborn foreigner, right? Not after the band, but after this reality that he's been cut off from his people. So maybe he sees himself outside of the covenant, so he's not been keeping track of this. It is intriguing to me that his wife knows what needs to be done, okay? She sees her husband's life at risk, and she knows this is the issue, okay? So maybe there's some sort of interrelational conflict here. Maybe he was like, so you married a Jew, and that means we're going to have a brisk you know, eight days after our sons are born, and she's like, no, you're not doing that to my baby. We're not told. But the reason it's brought up now is because obviously God cares about Moses taking care of this before Egypt, right? I think that's undeniable. As, as mysterious as the passage is, you cannot walk away from this thinking that circumcision, specifically of Moses' children, is unimportant to God. To get Moses' attention he makes it a life or death scenario, right? Okay, here I think is the principle. Here I think is something that you can see in other places throughout the scriptures. We have a natural tendency to make a major demarcation between ministry and family, between work and home. In fact, to some degree, to some degree, people can even justify bad behavior at home because of whatever public ministry they're called to. Okay, this is, this is just something I've seen in, in modern human life. But one of the principles the Bible maintains is that God cares about the small just as much as the big. He cares about the hidden just as much as the visible. He cares about what's going on in your home just as much as what's going on in your church. And so the reason why I say this is a principle is because later on when God calls Gideon, we find a lot of overlap, a lot of similarities. Gideon doesn't want the job either, and he comes up with all sorts of uh, you know, hoops for God to jump through so that he can be sure God really wants him to do this. But what is the first mission of Gideon? What's job number one? He says, hey, that idol your dad's got put up, you got to pull it down, right? He starts at home. He starts in the internal network of his family, and he says, this, and then the enemies, this first, right? And he's so afraid, he does it at night, right? He just sneaks out, and he topples the idol, and he runs away. But everybody puts the story together, and his father ends up defending him, and he, he gets it, and he goes, oh, wait a minute. Baal can defend himself. 
where is Baal that my weakling of a son was able to knock over his idol, right? And he just says, you know, and it's dealt with. So his father comes to recognize the fact that, that his idolatry is false, that his religion is empty. That's what happens. In a similar way, Paul maintains both in Titus and in Timothy, the pastoral epistles, that those who serve in ministry of the church, specifically as pastors, as overseers, as leaders of the church, need to have their house in order first. Like I said, it's not just one place in the New Testament, but both times it talks about pastors and the qualifications it says they need to have their house in order. They need to, uh, you know, be a man of, a husband of one wife. Uh, Their children need to not be rebellious. And he says, because how can you oversee this when you can't oversee this? In fact, and I'll just add one last thing. It's not just God who points to himself as being a father in Israel, the son. It's one of the metaphors he gives for those who care for his people. Okay. The metaphor of fatherhood. And so there's a massive overlap in the way that God sees leadership and the way that God sees the family. But either way, this is a first things first occasion. God says this has to be dealt with. You can't neglect this and do that. And I would, I would, um, I will give you this warning. You will think of a thousand excuses why whatever's going on in the privacy of your own home isn't that important. It's important. Okay. This is not Moses. If you don't deal with this, you die. This is Moses. This must be dealt with first, and I'm going to make sure I have your attention. Okay. And so there's this happening now. One last thing that's interesting. Here we see Moses, his wife Zephorah, and his sons, plural, on the way to Egypt. The next time they're referenced, we find them with Jethro and Midian. I think this is probably the end of them tagging along with Moses. Okay? At this point, they go home. We're not told, but like I said, when we encounter them again, it's Moses returning to his family in Jethro's care. But let's move on. Verse 27. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and he met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord of which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders, the people of Israel. It's, it's a small thing, but it's worth noting here. We're not told about God's call of Aaron. We're not told of the conversation or the how, but it's another aspect of God's orchestration. Aaron just wakes up one morning and says, God wants me to go into the wilderness. And he gets to the mountain of God. He finds Moses there. And Moses says, Aaron, I was looking for you. And he explains the whole thing. Okay. And then, verse 29, Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And so we see this first test run that just as God promised, God would be God, and then Moses would be like God to Aaron. He'd tell him what to say, and then Aaron would address the crowds. And so Aaron speaks to the people. They uh, perform the signs, and it says here that the people believed. And not only that, look at verse 31. The people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Okay? So 
one thing that we should deal with first is this word visitation. That word for us only carries the connotation of a social interaction, right? I came over to visit. The word that's being translated here, visit, in the Hebrew, as well as the one that's used in the New Testament, like when Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem and he says, Jerusalem, uh, how often I sought to gather you as hens, or as a hen does its chicks, but you were unwilling. Now here destruction is coming upon you. Why? Because you did not know the day of your visitation. Okay? It's not just that in Jesus, God came to visit socially. This word for visit means came to save. It means came to deliver. It means visit, and when you leave, your circumstances are changed. Okay, that's the word. So I just wanted to clarify that because we encounter it all the time. Um, the second thing I want you to notice is that they're all in. Right? They recognize this for what it is, God finally fulfilling the promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They recognize that their prayers are being answered in Moses and Aaron and that this is all going down. They believe. Okay. But, but that's only part of the story. They're quick to believe when there's signs and quiet in the closet. But look at what happens next in chapter 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And so they come and there's a few things I want you to notice. I'm just going to drop some facts and then we'll interpret them along the way. First, God told told them to gather the elders of Israel and then the elders of Israel, Aaron and Moses, would all go before Pharaoh. Here they speak to the elders of Israel, now they go before Pharaoh, but it's just Moses and Aaron. Even the Jewish interpreters before the time of Christ tried to figure out what had happened here and they assumed that the elders chickened out. Okay? We're not told, I just want you to notice that they're absent despite that's the fact that God told Moses that they should be present. Second, uh, is I want you to notice the reason in verse 1 there that Moses gives for letting my people go. Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. It's close, but it's not the same thing that God had told Moses to say. Moses was supposed to say, let my people go and we will go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice. Now a feast involves sacrifice. It might be similar language, but it's striking that it's different. Okay? Um, the next thing I want you to know, uh, notice uh, is he clarifies in verse 3. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Okay. And so here, once again, it's close. He clarifies. Now he uses the language God has given him. And then he adds this threat. But it's not the clear, the clear threat we saw in the last chapter. It's not, this is my firstborn son, it's pestilence and sword. And in Hebrew, in the Old Testament, there are three things that mean, mean God's judgment on a nation. Sword, pestilence, famine. We usually find all three together, okay? These are the most generic terms for or else in a prophet's repertoire, okay? And so, so here's the thing, it, does, it doesn't go well. 
And Moses doesn't do exactly what God asked him to do. I just want you to notice those things. But there's another thing I want you to notice here, and that's what Pharaoh responds. Verse 2, Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Now, you should probably read those words with a little bit of tone. He's not asking, wait, who, who's God? Right? What he's saying is, who is your God, right? He's taking a stand, you know, let's just recognize that Egypt believed in lots of gods, but they wouldn't be interested in a God whose people were enslaved. The God of our slaves, really? Right? That doesn't seem like a good God to worship. But nonetheless, what he says here is, who is the Lord? And I'm not letting you go because I don't know the Lord. Now, that word know becomes the key word of the rest of the Exodus narrative all the way to chapter 15. It comes up over and over and over again. But I want you to notice here that Pharaoh's excuse is, I don't know who God is. Okay. Now, um, verse 4. So, the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. In other words, he says, You've put everything on pause to waste my time with this. Time is money. Everybody back to work. And then he doesn't stop there. Verse 6, The same day Pharaoh commanded their taskmasters to the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore, they cry, let us go and offer sacrifices to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Okay, and so first he says, everybody back to work. And then he goes to his taskmasters and he says, okay, the quota remains the same, but no longer are we providing the basic materials for brick making. Okay. Now, I don't know if you've ever done any brick making. I have not. Um, But it's actually pretty difficult and hard labor, as it is, okay? You've got an incredibly hot kiln. You've got to pack the bricks, and it takes a lot of pressure. You leave them to dry in the sun, and then you put them in the kiln. um, And it's, it's got all of the elements you don't want in a single place, water, fire, and dust, Okay, and so it's awful on the skin. It's awful for your health. Um, when we deliver slaves from slavery, especially in India today, you know what they're doing? They're making bricks. That's honest. I, you can look it up. Okay, They're awful places to be. But here, now on top of that, they have to find enough fibrous material to make the bricks hold up. Okay? Uh, straw to bricks is like rebar to cement. It makes it so that you can't easily break the bricks so that they're not brittle because they're not just a bunch of particles stuck together by fire and pressure. They've got these running through it longer pieces that reinforce it. Okay? And so now they have to find, find, not just work the fields, find wherever they can find all the straw. But he says the quota remains the same. Okay? Now, recognize what he's doing. He's trying to make a, um, he's trying to discredit Moses. That's probably the clearest way to put it. He's trying to put a division between Moses and the people. 
He's trying to make them resent Moses because now, now they've got to work even harder. Uh, and it works. And so, uh, verse 10, So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I'll not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task, each day as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your tasks, making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? And so not only does he make the work harder, but he punishes them for not completing it. Verse 15, Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, and the fault is in your own people. But he said, You're idle. You are idle, and that's why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. He says, the real problem is you're lazy. You're so lazy, you have dreams. You're so lazy, you want a vacation, right? And that's the problem with slavery. But notice how, verse 19, they respond. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble, when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them and they came out from Pharaoh and they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hands to kill us. They say, this is all your fault. If you hadn't opened your big mouth, we were slaves, but at least we were surviving, right? This is a death sentence, We'll never make it, and if we, if we work hard enough to make it, we'll die working. And if we don't make it, then they're going to kill us, right? This is all your fault. Why did you open your mouth, Moses? Verse 22, Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done evil to the people, and you've not delivered your people at all. Now, that is an accurate statement. What happens when God sends Moses and Aaron in to deliver Israel? Things get worse, not better. It doesn't look like deliverance at all. It looks like more slavery. It looks even worse than things were yesterday. Moses doesn't understand this. Even though God had said that Pharaoh wasn't going to listen, and that has a point and a plan, here, once again, we're starting to point to something major that's, got, that's going on in the passage. God doesn't want to merely deliver Israel. He wants something more. And so he allows things to get worse before they get better, not because they have to, but because there's something on the agenda, something that's more important than freedom. Chapter 6, verse 1, But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. What a great reversal, right? He says, you want to know what it's going to look like at the end? It's going to be Pharaoh that sends you away. And he's going to do it with a strong hand. He's going to chase you out of Egypt is pretty close to a literal translation of what the sentence says. Verse 2, And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, as El Shaddai, okay? But my, by, by my name, the Lord what we sometimes call Jehovah or Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. 
I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land which they have lived as sojourners. Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to my people Israel, and we'll pause right there. He says something really interesting here. He says, I revealed myself to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, as El Shaddai. He says, but I did not make my name known as Jehovah. Now, the question is, why does he say this? Why does he bring it up here? And here's something we don't always understand because our our culture is so different. To the Jews and to the Bible as a whole, names mean more than just reference, okay? And so we don't just have names because that's how somebody gets our attention. That's how somebody addresses us. And God doesn't give the name Jehovah so that they know where to send their prayers, right? Like if you put the wrong address on the envelope, it won't make it. When he says here, now I'm revealing myself as Jehovah, I don't actually think this means that he's finally going, oh, by the way, I'll tell you my real name. He's not even saying, I told them I was El Shaddai, but I didn't tell them who I really was. What he's talking about here is character, which is what names always come down to in the Bible. Okay? God's name is his character, and, and uh, he says, here you're going to learn who I am. Here you're going to learn the significance of my name. Here I'm going to show you who I am. Then he reminds him of the promises, as we saw. I'm going to bring them out. He reminds them that he's heard the prayers, and then I want you to listen to what he says here. And so he says, therefore, verse 6, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, Jehovah. Okay. Here's where he starts to unpack the name. I am the Lord, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of Egypt. So how will they come to know the name Yahweh? Through this description. Do you notice how it begins and ends with Jehovah? I am the Lord, and he makes this description, so that you will know that I am the Lord is how it ends. And what does he say he's going to do? He says, I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to bring you out. I'm going to make you my people. Now, that doesn't have any comparable material to what God does with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay? What God says is, in this story, in the Exodus, in this happening, I'm going to show you my truest character. And what is that truest character? As Redeemer. Okay. I'm going to show you who I really am. See, here's the thing. God doesn't have to deliver Israel this way over the course of months with signs and wonders or plagues. He doesn't have to harden Pharaoh's heart to extend the whole thing. But he chooses to, to show who he is. Okay. And so he says, I'm going to teach you who I am. You're going to have lessons on my character. This whole thing is a demonstration. It's a classroom so that they may know who God really is. And so it continues here in verse 8. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give, you, give, it, to, give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. And so he begins and ends in the same place. I am Jehovah. And then he unpacks what it means. 
As I've said before, Exodus is the picture of who God is and what he's doing that is constantly referred to throughout the rest of the scriptures. So when the prophets start to look not backwards but forwards about what God's about to do, they do it in language couched in the events of the Exodus. When God reveals himself in the law and says, here's the law, where does the law begin? I am the God who delivered you out of Egypt. I have made you my people and I will be your God. Therefore, he gives the law. Okay? He's redeemer before he's lawgiver. When we get to the New Testament and Jesus is transfigured before James, John, and Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration, it says in the Gospel of Luke that he appeared there with Moses and Elijah and they were speaking about his, and in your English translation it probably says departure. The Greek word there is exodos, okay? It's literally a transliteration of a Hebrew word that's just been Greekified to drop it in the text. What was he speaking about with Moses and Elijah? About his coming exodus, okay? Basically, what God is doing with the people of Israel in the very beginning is painting a picture of his big plan, okay? Showing them his character, showing him where they're going Um, And so the Exodus is a tremendously important section of God's plan because it paints the portrait of who he is. Verse 9, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So he tries to convey this message. They don't want to hear it. Here's, here's, Here's the thing about the Exodus narrative. Israel isn't going to believe God's going to do it. Once God does it, they're going to complain and say, why did you do this? We were better off in Egypt. They're going to constantly fight and blame. Moses is appointed as their leader, and they're going to say, we don't want you. And then Moses is going to deliver, and they're going to say, you're just a death sentence. And they're going to say, can't somebody else lead us? Why don't we be our own leader? They are going to be tremendously stubborn for the duration of Exodus, as well as the book of Numbers. Moses is the same way. I mean, just recognize here, you can't put him in a category and it's like Israel complains and doesn't believe, but Moses goes, hey, you just wait and see. No, he goes to God and he goes, this is your fault. Just just for a second, what has Moses lost by the hard work of the rest of his people? Is Moses out there building bricks? No. All he's really upset about is his tarnished reputation. It's a little gross, and it won't be the last time. Moses is a complex character, and you cannot reduce the story of Exodus down to be like Moses. Okay. The only redeemer, the only deliverer, the only one who's always working in the best interest of his people, even though they don't want it and they complain about it, is God. But it begins right here, and right now, God is going to do the work, and he may have a captive audience, that's actually kind of a funny joke. Uh, but, but they're not a believing audience. At this point, their prayers end. At this point, their looking for redemption is over. It doesn't change God's plan at all. He is going to teach them who he is. So they do not listen. Chapter uh, 6, verse 10. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of the land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. 
Now, I haven't really thought about this in the context of those weird verses a few chapters ago, but it is intriguing that he picks this particular metaphor. But nonetheless, verse 13, but the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Okay, so now all of the pieces are in play and much like we saw in the book of Genesis, we have suddenly interjected a genealogy. And it seems like such an interruption of the story, but I want you to notice that the person who's put this text together knows that it's an interruption and deals with it in a way uh, that makes sense of it. So notice again, um, verse 13, but the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And then if you jump down to um, verse 28, um, on the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, I'm of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Sound familiar? Right? It's the exact same thing we just read in reverse order. That's called an inclusio. Okay? It's, it's a way of summing up a story in the same way that it started. The way that I like to think of it visibly is like parentheses, okay? And so those verses with verse 13 and 12 is the open parenthesis, and at the end is the closed parenthesis. And so this genealogy is not just left in the manuscript accidentally. It's intentionally put here. And here's the closest thing I could think of. In fact, I have this whole idea now for a, for a funny short film series, but uh, for those of you who have watched The Office, The Office always begins with a cold open. Right? where they just do a very simple and short gag just to get a laugh, and then the credits break. Okay? It just sets the tone for the show, and then you have the credits, and what happens in the credits? You're introduced to all the characters. That's how this genealogy that we're about to read functions, and we'll see that to be the case. Okay? Now, the reason I think that is funny is because I love the idea of setting up an office with Pharaoh, you know, in his big Pharaoh hat behind a desk, and playing out the politics of what's going on uh, you know, as a comedy like The Office is, that's just a little bit ridiculous. Um, anyways, but nonetheless, that's what this does. It's set up the story, it's filled it with tension, we have a reason to keep watching, right? What's God going to do now? He's got a disgruntled servant who's unwilling, he's got a pharaoh who's, who's totally resistant, and he's got a people who don't believe he's going to do anything. We want to know how this is going to be resolved, and then he says, all right, let me introduce you to the main characters. Let me put it in context. And so that's what he does. Verse 14. These are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanuk, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Jemiel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi. Now pause. It starts like the usual suspects of Israel. Right? And it starts with the firstborn, with Reuben, and then secondborn, Simeon, and then it does Levi. And then at the end of Levi, it's going to stop. Okay? We're not going to hear about Levi's younger brother, Judah, or any of the other, uh, you know, the other eight that follow. He starts just to roll us into what he really wants to talk about, okay? which is Levi. Now notice what he does here. 
Um, verse 16, these are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations, Gershon, Koath, and Merai, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, Shimei by their clans, the son of Koath, Amram, Ishar, Hebron, and Uziel, and the years of the life of Koath being 133 years. The sons of Merai, Malhil, and Mushil, these are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jochbed, the father's, uh, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. Now, there's a lot of names here, but if you trace this through, he lays out brothers and sisters, and then he selects a single sibling and tells us their kids. Lays out brothers and sisters and selects a single sibling until it gets to Amram. There at Amram, we're told that Amram's wife's name is Jochbed, and then we discover that she has a couple of kids. Moses and Aaron are both them. Now, notice this because it's interesting. It doesn't go on to Moses' sons. We know one of them, remember, foreigner, Gershom. Instead, notice what it says in verse 21. The sons of Izar, Korah, and Nepheg, and Zikri, the sons of Uziel, Mishael, uh, Elzaphan and Sithri, Aaron took as his wife, Elsheba, the daughter of Amnibadab, and the sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithmar. The sons of Korah, Aser, Elkanah, and Ashbeth, these are the sons of Korites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took his wife, one of his daughters of Petul, and she bore him Phinehas. Okay, and so instead it keeps going down Aaron's line, and there's a couple of names that you may recognize. There's his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, or, uh, Sorry, there's his sons, um, uh, yeah, Nadab and Abihu. I'm just making that up. That's just what's coming to mind. Yeah, Nadab and Abihu, as well as Eleazar, these are all major players uh, later in the story, especially in the book of Leviticus. And it follows the line all the way down to Phineas. okay? Now, all of these characters are going to come into play, um, but... Here, there's two things going on. One is, he's introducing characters that will be important later. In fact, by the time we get to Phineas, we're getting contemporary with the original audience that would have read the book of Exodus. And so what he's done is reached back to the book of Genesis and reached forward to his audience's time and said, here's the context. Here's where we're at in the story. But the genealogy is tremendously selective. Okay. He skips tons of generations to do this. He's just wanting us to notice and trace this line. In fact, he tells us so. Notice what he says next after we get to Phineas. These are the heads of the father's house of Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their host. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. This Moses and this Aaron. Okay. You see what he's doing? He just takes the genealogy and he says, here's the guys I'm talking about. Moses and Aaron, the great-grandfather and great-uncle of Phineas. Moses and Aaron, the great descendants of Levi. Okay? He sets it in the context. That's all he's trying to do is just introduce the characters. That's why this genealogy is so limited. But the other thing I want you to notice is it doesn't here focus on Moses. It focuses on Aaron. Why? Because Aaron is suddenly this integral part of the story. Right? This was supposed to be the Moses and God story. Moses' hesitancy makes it the Moses Aaron and God story. And so before it gets rolling, it helps us to understand where Aaron came from. Okay? 
helps us to understand that Aaron is the great high priest Aaron. It helps us to understand that it's Aaron's descendants, uh, you know, who form up the centerpiece of the Levitical priesthood. And so it finishes where it started, as we saw in 28 through 30. And then we pick up in chapter 7, and I just want to get seven more verses, and then we'll stop so that we can do um, all the, the plagues together. But notice the first few verses of chapter 7. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I've made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. Okay. So last time he said, You will be like God to Aaron. You will speak to him, and he will speak for you, just like I will speak to you. And here he says, You will be like God to Pharaoh, and Aaron will be your prophet. Now that's incredibly helpful. Okay. What we call the prophetic ministry people like Elijah and Elisha, Isaiah and Jeremiah, all the way up to John the Baptist. That paradigm of a prophet begins here with Moses. Okay. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, God speaks specifically and says that God will be faithful to raise up a prophet like Moses. He's the reference point. Okay. But what, the reason why it's valuable here is because it says that Aaron will be a prophet for you, Moses. And then notice how it explains what a prophet does. So it says here, verse 2, You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of the land. And so what does a prophet do? He speaks the things he's been told. It's pretty simple. In fact, the Hebrew idiom that's used here is that you will speak to him mouth to mouth, face to face, okay? In the book of Jeremiah, this is the idiom that's used for dictation when Jeremiah has one of his helpers write down a letter, okay? Here's why I'm telling you this. Because the understanding of what a prophet is laid out here is direct revelation. The prophet can say with mouth wide open and full honesty in their eyes, thus says the Lord. It's this same basis that the Bible as the revelation of God is built upon. In fact, it's this same concept that Peter picks up on in the New Testament and he says, no prophet spoke of private interpretation just going, here's what I think of the world. Here's who I think God is. Here's what I think is going to happen next. He says, no, they didn't speak of private interpretation, but they spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so the foundation of the Bible is summed up in this reality that God spoke through his prophets. That their testimony is reliable because God was actually speaking to them in the same way that Moses, before they went before Pharaoh, goes, here's what you're going to say. And then Aaron said, here's what Moses said. Okay, That's the paradigm. That's the setup. So, verse 3. But, he says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Okay, and so once again, he says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. But here we find out this is not just what already happened, what we already read. Not just once, but I'm going to continue to do so, so that it says, 
while I multiply my signs and wonders in the land. Okay, this is going to be a perpetual and ongoing resistance that Pharaoh is going to put up, if anyone's counting, for a total of 10 plagues, right? Um, and then notice why, verse 5, the Egyptians shall what? Know that what? That I am Jehovah. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out my people of Israel from among, among them. Okay, and so he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do it this way so that Egypt will know that I am Jehovah. As we read next week, we're going to say that he's going to say, I'm going to do it this way so that you, Israel, will know that I am Jehovah. And it's going to be repeated over and over again. What was the question Pharaoh asked? Who is God? I don't know him. God is trying to take care of that issue. And I also want you to notice that it's not just so that Pharaoh will know, it's so that all of Egypt will know. One of the paradigms that happens in the plagues is everyone but Pharaoh softens their hearts and they're like, you know, we should really rethink this and we should probably let them go. Things are getting crazy, right? In fact, when Israel leaves, do they leave alone? No. Okay, and so God's goal in the exodus is not merely deliverance, it's demonstration. And it's not just to deliver Israel, but to show Egypt and Israel and Pharaoh and Moses, look at chapter 14, so that they will know who God is. This is a demonstration of God's character, of God's power. It's a clear reminder that God is the creator God, right? Because he has power over the flies and over the river and over the sun and all of these things, okay? This is the story of the Exodus. It's a demonstration of who God is. But there is one other aspect. Did you notice at the end of verse 4, he says that this is going to happen by great acts of judgment. Okay. See, this is the great thing about the stories the Bible tells, and it's also the great thing about who God is. He's an incredible multitasker. Okay. And so he's not just going through the motions of showing them. This is actually consequence. This is actually God bringing about judgment on Egypt. In fact, we're going to find that the ways that he chooses to do so are directly targeting the pantheon of Egypt. He doesn't just do signs. He overturns everything that Egypt finds safety in. Okay? So he doesn't just say, so that you may know that I'm God. He also does this so that you may know your gods are not gods at all. Okay? But they are acts of judgment. They're consequences. Um, this all is going on, and then let's uh, finish here in verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out my people Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old, his older brother, when they spoke to Pharaoh. Okay, What does that final addition there, those last two verses, tell us? We've just closed the prologue, right? Now the story is about to really start. And so it takes the time to say in advance, Moses and Aaron are going to perform admirably, right? They're going to do just as they're commanded. But we haven't heard that story yet. It's held off. And then it says, by the way, we're talking about an 80-year-old man and his three-year-old senior older brother. Um, but this is all the pieces on the table. So when we pick up next week, we get into the Exodus proper, okay? We're no longer reading the introduction. We've moved into chapter one. Um, 
I don't want to hit it too hard because I don't want to steal all of our thunder for next week. But this is why the book of Exodus is so important. This is why it's recorded. This is why Genesis is written. Okay? Genesis is written to get us to Exodus. It's recorded to, get, to give us the context to bring us up to this moment. God's desire is to be known. And by the way, that's really good news because it completely changes the human paradigm. The issue is not, maybe there's a God out there, we should find him. The issue is not, I'm sure there's a God, but I have no idea what he's like, we should guess. Okay? What the Bible proclaims is that God desires to make himself known and has actually made himself known. The prophets later are going to say, he didn't do any of these things in a corner, right? He did them publicly. He did them visibly. He demonstrated them. He did these things because he wants to show himself to his people. He wants to show himself to the world. And he even secures the process through this relationship with prophets so that there's a faithful witness, okay? On top of that, not only does it set up the paradigm of God as revealer, but it also sets up the paradigm of God as redeemer. Okay, that this is what he's about, that this is what he's interested in, that this is who he is in his character. Um, and so it, you really, and I mean this with full strength of what I'm about to say, you cannot understand the ministry of Jesus Christ his death, burial, resurrection, and the Christian life that springs out of it without understanding the book of Exodus. It's not just that this will give you illustrations and imagery for that. This is God saying, here's what it means. Here's what it's about. So come back next week. Let's pray. I know as far as some of us may get is, if there is a God, I want to know him. And others are, I know there's a God, but I want to know him. And for some of us, it's, I want to know you more. But I thank you, Lord, for the fact that we can be confident in our pursuit of you because you pursued us first. We can be confident in the fact that God is knowable because you are the God who makes himself known. Part of that is we have to own up and recognize the fact that we need a deliverer, that we need a savior, that we don't approach God on our own merit uh, or on equal footing, but that the, the, the most honest prayer we can pray is a prayer for help. And that's okay because you are this God, the God of the Exodus, the God who is deliverer, the God who is redeemer, the God who wants to bring us out from slavery and into service and worship of the only one worthy of service and worship. And I pray as we continue to walk through the story of the Exodus as well, it would shed light on what you've done in Jesus Christ, of what you invite the world into today, that we would see this for what it is, the, the dress rehearsal for our redemption. We thank you for your word tonight and for this time. We ask that you'd be with us this week in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.